Thank you that millennia ago you planted the hope of the gospel. In the first moments after sin and rebellion, you spoke a word of hope and promise. And then in the fullness of time, you gave your son Jesus to be the fulfillment of that promise. And for the last 20 centuries, people like us have heralded, proclaimed, and sought to live the beauty, the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in places like Vero Beach, Florida. Our prayer again this week is that you would accept these gifts and lay hold of our lives to the end that this great good news would continue to sound forth in this place and from this place even to the end of the earth. Do this for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to Mark's Gospel. And we will look together at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. We're in the season of Easter, uh, so it may seem a bit odd that we're going back to the beginning of a gospel, uh, but um, there's, uh, there's good reason for that. So let's read together. Follow along with me, Mark 1, 14 through 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, um, having given us your word, um, we we now again ask for your spirit. Um, We ask for your spirit to help us to be attentive to this your word. We ask your spirit, Lord Jesus, that he might bring your very presence, together with the Father's presence into our midst. We need for you to do this because we need you. And so, Lord Jesus, come by the agency of your Spirit and by the Spirit's power wed to the Word, accomplish things in our lives for the praise of your name. And we ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We, uh, we are in uh, the post-resurrection season. I mean, that's too true in a couple of respects. This is, this is post-resurrection in the 2,000-year sense. We've been living in the post-resurrection season since Jesus was raised, but in the annual cycle of the church year, as the church reflects upon and, and remembers the significance of the 
incarnation of Christ and the life of Christ and his death and his burial. And then this explosion, this explosion of Jesus from death and from the grave, this explosion of a new creation into the midst of an old, sin-plagued, death-laden, cursed, broken, troubled world order. The resurrection is the explosion of the Son of God as the symbol and picture of a new creation. And we're in that season, still reflecting upon, still thinking about the significance of the resurrection. And as I said three weeks ago, everything is different. Three Sundays ago, two weeks ago. It's been a wild couple of weeks, let me tell you. But as I said three weeks ago, two weeks ago, three Sundays ago, everything is different. Everything has changed because of the resurrection. I was thinking about this this week and thinking about this word that appears in the first verse of Mark's gospel, the word gospel, the word that appears in verse 14 of this first chapter in the passage we've read, again the word gospel. And then it appears again on the lips of Jesus, verse 15, the word gospel. It's a word that means good news, right? I was thinking about this this morning. I I wondered, what is it that would compel you, that would constrain you to run from this place to Sebastian or Vero Beach and, and sort of stand in the center of town and begin to gospel the gospel? Announce, herald, proclaim the gospel. The only thing that could possibly constrain you to do something as foolish as that, there used to be this, I haven't seen him for a couple of years, maybe some of you saw him, there used to be this African-American young man, very handsome man, he'd stand at the corner of US 1 and 17th Street and preach to cars. What makes somebody do something nutty like that? What causes people to gospel the gospel, to herald, to announce the gospel? Well, the only thing big enough, the only thing sufficient enough to explain why people would do that is that everything's different. Everything is different because of the gospel. And I wonder if we see that. I wonder if we capture that. Everything is different because of the resurrection. The gospel is no gospel if it isn't for the resurrection. Certainly was true of James. I heard someone mention this this last week. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who through the course of his life mocked Jesus along with everybody else. And at one point, you can read this in Mark chapter 3, at one point with his brothers came to get Jesus to take him back home because they thought he was mad that he'd lost his mind. And James, when he writes... His letter, James 1.1, identifies himself not as the half-brother of Jesus, but he identifies himself as the bond slave, the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a stunning change. How come? Because at some point, either late in the ministry of Jesus 
or maybe even after the resurrection of Jesus, James got it and everything was different. And James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. The gospel, the resurrection, changes everything. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It is so riveting, that's so captivating, that so changes people. Let me, let me outline it with, um, with three points. First, whose gospel is it? What is the gospel? Well, first, whose gospel is it? And then second, what is the gospel? And then third, so what? What difference does it make? First, whose gospel is it? This, folks, this is, this is really, to me, very significant, personally and pastorally. Whose gospel is it? It's not my gospel. It's not the church's gospel. In a sense, it isn't even Jesus' gospel first. It is God's gospel. It is the gospel of God. That's what Jesus seems to indicate here. That's what Mark indicates. Verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. Now, um, I, I'm one of those odd people who really is fascinated by language. I love how it works. I love how language works. And I love genitives. What are genitives? Well, you've got a genitive in verse 14 of chapter 1. The gospel of God. Gospel is the noun the prepositional phrase of God informs, shapes, modifies, helps us understand something about the gospel, the gospel of God. It's a genitive. The question is, how do you understand it? You can understand it in this way. There are different kinds of genitives, right? Subjective genitives, partitive genitives, objective genitives. I, I did a little research this last week to make sure I was right about this. So how do you understand this? Look, you can understand it in one of two ways. Is this the gospel about God? Or is it the gospel from God? The gospel of God. Is it a gospel that God gives? Or is it a gospel in which God is the main character and the subject? And you know what? This is where I love ambiguity. You don't have to choose because it's both. John uses language in this way. John chapter 3, the interaction with Nicodemus where Jesus says, unless you are born again, which can also mean properly born from above, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above. Oh, John, do I have to choose? No, you don't have to choose. It's both. Being born again means literally to be reborn. And the only way a person is ever reborn is from above, by the agency of the Spirit of the Father and the Son. You don't have to choose. The gospel here is the gospel 
about God and it is the gospel from God. It is the gospel in which God takes center stage. God is the main character and it is a gospel that having been accomplished by him, he delivers now to the church that the church might good news the good news, herald the good news to the ends of the earth. Why is that important? I think it's important because deep in our subconsciousness, deep in our souls, there is a voice, and I know this is true. It's true for me, and it's true for you. I hate it that it's true for me, and I hate it that it's true for you, and I long for the day when it'll no longer be true for any of us. When body and soul, as we have affirmed, we are fully restored, fully reconstituted, and every aspect of our being is aligned the way it's supposed to be, and so this experience will never ever be yours again, nor will it be mine. It's this experience sort of deep in the fabric of my soul that says something like this, that whispers something like this. Watch out. Be careful. Don't break the rules. Don't screw up because God is behind the next tree and he's watching you. Remember the old police song? I'll be watching you. Every breath you take, every step, I'll be watching you. Aren't you haunted by that voice? That, that voice that leaves you with this sense of uncertainty? Does the Father really love sinners? Is the work of Jesus in my behalf really sufficient for the totality of my waywardness, my rebellion, my guilt, my brokenness, my disinterest? Folks, the gospel originates with God, triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He is the central character in the story of the gospel, it is his purpose from before the foundation of the world to redeem, to rescue, and to restore. And let me say this to you this morning. This is where I anticipate point number three. So what? What's the difference? What difference does this make? If you are a Christian this morning, understand this. You have nothing to fear. There's nobody lurking behind the tree. This gospel this good news comes from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit from before the foundation of the world. John Calvin reflected upon this. I don't know if you've ever read the Institutes. Some of it just seems dated, archaic, irrelevant, power through those passages. Because every once in a while, you come to a passage like this where Calvin is reflecting upon what Paul says to, to the Romans in chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Calvin's burden, pastoral burden, 
is to persuade us that we have nothing to fear because God who is love has taken it upon himself to do something about and do something for those who are unlovable and unlovely. And he has loved them with an everlasting love. And then he quotes Augustine. So Calvin, 16th century, Augustine, 5th century. Dead and blessed friends of mine. God's love, says Augustine, is incomprehensible and unchangeable. For it was not after we were reconciled to him through the blood of his son that he began to love us. Rather, he has loved us before the world was created that we also might be his sons along with his only begotten son before we became anything at all. The fact that we were reconciled through Christ's death must not be understood as if his son reconciled us to him that he might now begin to love those whom he had hated. But rather, we have already been reconciled to him who loves us with whom we were enemies on account of sin. The apostle will testify whether I am speaking the truth. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In a marvelous and divine way, he loved us even when because of our sin, he hated us. Here's my way of putting it. It is not the cross that secures the love of God for you. It is the love of God for you that secures the cross for you. Whose gospel is it? It's God's gospel. God who loves, who delights in. And who delights to save sinners. So what is the gospel? What is this good news of which God is the subject, the central character? This good news that having accomplished salvation, he now entrusts to his church that his church might good news the good news. might That's what it means to, to, to announce, to herald. That's what the word evangelism is, right? It's to good news something, to herald something. So what is this gospel, this good news? Well, let me give you three sub-points under point number two. First, look at the text. The gospel is the announcement of the kingdom of God. The gospel is the announcement of the kingdom of God. As you think about the gospel, you can sort of begin macro. You can begin big. You can begin wide angle. You can can start at the open end of the funnel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the announcement of the kingdom of God. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
It's the first announcement. It's the announcement of a kingdom. And doesn't this, you know this does, this goes all the way back as I, as I prayed after we received the offering. This goes all the way back to what? You can say it. It's all right. Genesis 3.15. It goes all the way back to those first moments after our rebellion, after our sin, when God, because he is consummately, infinitely merciful and gracious and because he wants to put his son on display as an extraordinary savior, the father speaks this word of promise as he speaks to the serpent and says, he, he, who? Who is the he? He is the one who would come. He will crush your head even as you wound him on the heel. I had a great little email while I was gone from one of the children of our church through her mother extolling the virtues of the serpent crusher. His mother sent me this text saying that her daughter was talking about how Jesus was going to crush the head of the serpent. I love it. Eight years I've been saying this. And it's getting through. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. This hope, this promise, and it's captured and it's sort of recast and enlarged and beautified and adorned across the whole of the Old Testament so that when you come to passages like Psalms 96 and 97 and 98 that I'd love to read top to bottom, start to finish, but I'll just encourage you to do it. When you come to Psalms like Psalm 96, so sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. And you drop down to the end of that psalm. And you hear this, you hear the heavens being glad and the earth rejoicing and the sea roaring with its pleasure. The fields exulting. The trees of the forest singing for joy. Why? They are singing, they are exulting, they are rejoicing because he is coming to judge the earth. He is coming to judge the world in righteousness. And a person who has lived in, immersed himself, immersed herself in, been Pickled in Genesis 3.15 and its hope and the unfolding and beautifying and enlarging of that hope across all of those centuries reads those verses and cannot wait for the day when the king comes and the kingdom comes and everything is put right. A new kingdom with a different kind of king as we've said So many times, look at the world around you. Look at the world around you. Pick the best of the kings. Pick the best of the kingdoms. You live in one. And they are flawed. And they fade away. They do not last. But the resurrection confirms that this king 
will never die. And when he inaugurates his kingdom, it will never fade. Jesus comes announcing, heralding the beauty, the wonder of a new kingdom. And if you look at his life, if you look at his ministry, what do you see Jesus doing? You see him again and again and again and again, giving us snapshots, giving us pictures, giving us little signposts along the road of what the kingdom will look like when he brings it to its consummation. That's what he does when he heals. You do know that everyone whom Jesus healed either got sick again or died again. It was impermanent. A blessing to the man who couldn't walk, to be sure. An incomprehensible joy to the man who couldn't see, you absolutely know it. Freedom unlike anything he had ever experienced to the Gadarene demoniac, without question. But every single one of them tasted, experienced the realities of the kingdom temporarily and imperfectly. But every one of those healings, restorations, is a snapshot, a picture of where Jesus is taking history. He's taking it to a completion and a consummation where in his kingdom, all of the citizens of that kingdom know absolute wholeness, health, blessedness, and prosperity. Gospels about a new kingdom where death isn't present and weakness and frailty and sin are gone forever. Gospel is not only about the kingdom, the gospel is about a person. And boy, do we need a long time to talk about this and we just don't have it. The gospel is about a person, isn't it? You can deduce this from Mark chapter 1. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is at hand or is present. That's what it means. The kingdom of God is here. How is it here? It is here in the person of the king. That's how it works. The king embodies the realities of the kingdom. The gospel is about a person, my friends. You know that. The gospel is about the person, Jesus. Who is the king? I find this striking. You have to go back. Those of you who have been here for four and a half years, you have to go back to August the 2nd, 2009 for this. Some of you, I'm sure, have photographic memories and you will recall immediately that I made this point four and a half years ago. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. What's the gospel? The gospel is the hope of a different world order, a new kingdom. But that kingdom is inextricably tied to, connected with, and embodied in the person of the Son. You have no kingdom of God if you don't have the King. And Paul, interestingly, connects the coming of the Son, the Son Jesus Christ, 
to that promise, all of those promises. And he says two things about the Son of significance. He was more than that, but these two. That he was descended from David according to the flesh and immediately was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead through the spirit of holiness. Theologians have language for that. They talk about the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. The coming into our world of the Christ and fulfilling all of those Old Testament promises. And then the exaltation of Christ, beginning with his resurrection. This powerful demonstration of the fact that he is who he says he is. What Paul leaves out, isn't it, is the cross. But he's going to go on through the rest of the letter to talk about the cross, particularly in chapter 3, verses 21 to 27. He's going to focus on the cross right there. And in effect, he is going to say the centerpiece of this humiliation followed by this resurrection and exaltation is this work of Jesus where he, the one who is in the embodiment of the kingdom, lays aside his glory, disrobes himself of his glory, and at the cross, robes himself in the sins of his people that he on the cross might be the one judged guilty the one upon whom is the wrath of God visited so that sinners might be forgiven. The gospel is about this person who comes having laid aside his glory, who in humility and weakness is impaled upon a cross. And by that cross, the great, strange, wonderful, mysterious irony of the cross the kingdom actually finds vivid and powerful expression. And it is in the, in the cross that the crushing of the serpent is effected and the beginning of the renovation of all things begins to take place. All confirmed by the resurrection of Christ, the explosion of Christ out of the grave into newness of life, never to die again. The gospel is about a person. And then lastly, the gospel is personal. And folks, let me just say this. Just kind of scanning the crowd, you who are here this morning, the pretty good idea that you understand this, but this gospel this gospel really demands a response. It requires a response. Jesus says it in verse 15. Repent and believe in this gospel. Repent and entrust yourself to this gospel. Turn away. That's what repent is. It's to turn away. Turn away from the kingdoms of this world. Turn away from gods that cannot save. Turn away from empty cisterns that cannot satisfy. 
heard a phenomenal sermon this last week. I just have to tell you, phenomenal sermon in which the preacher was talking about the heart. And you know, he made this wonderful point. He said, you know how we hear that, that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that can only be filled by Jesus Christ? He said, I want to take exception to that. The heart doesn't have a vacuum in it. The heart has a problem in it. The heart is a happiness seeker. The heart is implanted in us by God that we might seek our happiness in Him. And then he went on to say, the problem with your heart is that it's a bad picker. It's like a 16-year-old girl who goes through boyfriend after boyfriend after boyfriend. Your heart is a bad picker. And what your heart needs is to be recalibrated and renewed. That's what being born again is. So that your heart might be attached. Your happiness-seeking heart might be attached to what really will bring happiness. And that is Jesus. This gospel calls for a response. It calls that we turn away from the kingdoms of this world. It calls that we turn away from lesser gods. It calls that we turn away from these objects that cannot do for us what Jesus alone can do. And it summons us to trust, to give up these false trusts that at the end will only turn to dust in our hands. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his beauty, his loveliness, his glory, his grace. The gospel's about a kingdom, the gospel's about a per- person, and the gospel calls for a response, a response of turning away and turning to Jesus. That's the so what. That's the so what. And what difference does it make? I'll take you back to the beginning. Look at James. Everything in James, everything about James was completely, entirely recalibrated so that there was a new north star, a new hope, a new joy, a new happiness. Jesus, in just a moment, will stand before us And he will say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you will hear me say, it is not these elements that can give you that rest. It is the one to whom they point, who offers promises And liberally, out of his own fullness, gives the rest, the peace, 
the assurance, the comfort that he promises. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the good news. Thank you for what you offer and for the hope that you impart. Lord, like Lazarus, like the blind man, like the leper, we will taste these things imperfectly and impermanently. But taste them we will until that day when you finish what you've started. Lord, as we prepare to come to this table, whet our appetites and then satisfy them in some measure with yourself. We ask in your name. Amen. Just stand with me as we sing.